Welcome to Business School. My name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. My name is Phineas Ellis. I'm the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. This is a show where we explore the many glamorous and scandalous aspects of consumer startup culture. We wanted to talk for a while now about what happens behind the scenes when founders leave the company that they started. Our guest today, I'm very excited about this, is Slava Rubin, co-founder of Indiegogo, um, one of the world's largest crowdfunding platforms. Slava was CEO for the first decade of the company's life and has the unique perspective of having seen his co-founders depart and then later on stepping down from his own role as CEO. I have to note, Slava, you are an investor and board observer for Burrow through your venture capital fund, Ambition that you co-founded in 2016. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start out by telling us a little bit about your background? Sure, um, let's see. I was born in Belarus, grew up in Brooklyn, and we moved to Pennsylvania. I went to University of Pennsylvania for college, uh, Wharton undergrad. Uh, was a strategy consultant for eight years. While I was there, came up with the idea of Indiegogo with my two co-founders and parallel tasks the idea while still working. And then in January 2008, uh, launched Indiegogo to the world. Uh, did that for a very long time, well over a decade as CEO, and started angel investing uh, midway through my Indiegogo career. Really enjoyed that. And then more recently started a venture fund called Ambition where we invest into early stage companies, seed and A. As part of that, transitioned out of an operating role at Indiegogo, uh, stayed on the board, and super excited to be here on the call. Um, yeah, man, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to dig in. We got a bunch of, a bunch of questions. Uh, there's a bunch of themes that we touch on on the show, and one of them is, I, th I think there's a, oftentimes a misunderstanding of what startups mean and how people make money from those startups. I think we all think that there has to be an exit for people to make money. And so we grow these companies and then they have to cash out, get acquired by a big business or uh, maybe go public. And we're going to do a future episode on going public and what that actually means. But for you, um, just quick nuts and bolts question about Indiegogo is the company, how much money did you raise when you were building the business? Is the company still private? And then on top of that, have founders or early employees been able to get liquidity or cash out in any way up to this point? And what, what does that journey look like? Yeah, so when we came up with the idea in 2006, the three co-founders, myself, Eric, and Danae, we bootstrapped the company through 2007 and then into the launch of 2008. The goal was to have a three-quarter plan and raise venture capital money in Q3 2008. Q1, we were going to launch. Q2, we were going to get case studies. And Q3, we were going to promote those case studies and raise money. For those that don't know, Q3 2008 was a very bad time in the economy and VC money contracted significantly, way more actually than it's ever contracted during COVID. So that plan when, went up in the air and poof, it disappeared. So we were unable to raise money for years. We got rejected by 93 VCs in a row. And we had to decide how we were going to become sustainable because that felt like the only path. So eventually the company was making money, revenue early, and we were able to become profitable off of a small scale. 
we weren't paying ourselves and we were really investing to work into our own company. Uh, finally, we were able to get a seed round pulled together and then we were kind of off to the races. We raised 1.5 and then 15, then another $40 million. Uh, so we've raised nearly uh, uh, like 70 million to date uh, at Indiegogo. That's awesome. And it's been an exciting ride along the way. Some of the investment rounds have been competitive. So getting secondary liquidity has been an option for founders and early employees. Um, but we also have grown a, a company to be of decent scale. And as part of that, you know, people were paid you know, decent salaries as well. I wouldn't call it the Silicon Valley big enterprise salaries, but people were definitely able to live off of what they were making at Indiegogo. So you have, you're still private. Oh yeah, sure. We are private. Yes. And so that I means a long time to stay private, right? Is that the expectation that you would have stayed private this long was going public an option? Like, how do you make that decision? Obviously it's in, inside baseball a bit, but. I mean, there's very large private companies, multi-billion dollar private companies, and there's very small public companies. Um, there's pros and cons to either path. Everybody needs to navigate that together in terms of who are the decision makers. I really didn't have a plan as to when it would be public or not public, but I find that the key is to create optionality. So as long as you're serving your customers and people are happy and they're willing to pay for your services and you're growing, um, that you can create options and you just decide as the governance organization, what's the best option to navigate towards. It's common for there to be turnover at startups, obviously. Um, one of the things that contributes to that in a major way is that the company grows at a faster pace than perhaps some of the co-founders or employees develop. I know that you've seen turnover, you've watched your co-founders depart. Do you mind talking about that? Like what led to those situations? How did you navigate that? So the uh, process of founding a company to having a large enterprise has its own stages. And to massively simplify, uh, I would call it there are four types of people. So people that are founders, people that are the early employees that follow founders, people that want to see traction and are willing to work at a company that still has risk but has traction, and people that want to work at a stable growing company. Those to me are like the four stages. Uh, very rarely are people good and willing to work at all four. Uh, most people are not good at all four. Most people are good at usually two, and most people are usually willing to work at you know two, maybe three, definitely not all four. So it's a tricky thing to navigate where people are potentially founders and go all the way through to uh, working at a, let's call it, very large company. Uh, it, it makes sense in theory. It makes sense, not in theory. It makes sense. But I know that the, the challenging part is for you yourself as a person going through that. It's hard to recognize when you like what you're good at. And then if you aren't, if you are now in a stage that it's not what you want, or it's not what you're good at, that can be challenging. And how do you figure that out and, and navigate that? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. That requires a lot of self-reflection and that requires a lot of good people around you, uh, good leaders around you, good co-founders around you, good operators around you, hopefully some experience, hopefully some investors. So as it relates to uh, our team, there was three co-founders, like I mentioned. So Eric, uh, he was, I like to call the hands. 
So he was the CTO, design, development, engineering, everything that had to get done, he did. Uh, Danae, the heart, so she was the COO of the operations. So anything that wasn't the technical work that had to get done uh, internally, she led the banking, the customer service, the following up on compliance, making sure that our operations worked, making sure if there was any manual things before they were turned into scalable things through software. Uh, so that was Danae. And then myself, I was the eyes. So I was looking forward external of the company that included uh, marketing, PR, sales, fundraising, strategy, whatever that is, and uh, looking out into the, uh, the future. So we were quite complimentary and the three of us made it a point to be equal co-founders off the start. And that was really important. And then as things evolved, you know, I stepped up to be a CEO after discussions internally. And then we moved forward. And actually, every time that we were navigating uh, challenging points, whether it's while we were getting rejected uh, from VCs or exciting times when we were starting to raise money, we kept on challenging ourselves. Do we have the right people around the table to make the right decisions? And, you know, at certain times, people took different roles uh, or would have different jobs that they would experiment with. And we would see who's better at doing what. And uh, we knew that we had to hire more people to complement ourselves. And uh, round by round, we would navigate if we had to bring in new talent to complement our skill sets or lack of experience. And that's exactly what we did. Perfect example would be some of the folks that we brought in, you know, after the A round or after the B round, these really awesome experienced folks that had way more experience than us. And to be perfectly frank, were better than us at the things we were hiring them for. And that was critical. As part of that, you also have to make space for those people to have control and responsibility and authority because they want all of that opportunity. So that does require sometimes for folks to you know, move aside or to move into a different role. And that includes us as founders as to where we had to create space. So when, when did that happen? When did your, your co-founders step down at some point, right? When you say uh, step down, you're talking about leaving the company or you're talking about um, just moving from different roles, what exactly would you like to know? Both. Yeah. I, I think the, the first step, I mean, it sounds like if you have that mature of an approach to it as a, as a founding team of let's constantly evaluate where we stand and how are we setting up the company for success? I think it, it makes sense to, to at some point, you know, change roles. Um, so we'd love to hear about that. And then if at any point folks did leave, how was that decision made as well? Now, if what the idea is that everybody's doing good work, but it's time that we just bring in better talent because the company is growing and we got bigger problems to solve and we got more things to figure out and we got to move faster or scale better, the person that you're moving over, uh, it shouldn't be a problem. Hopefully, it should be an opportunity because we should be saying, hey, you totally figured this out from zero to three. We now need to have somebody else come and figure this out from three to eight. Uh, but I need more zero to threes figured out. So go figure these other five zero to threes out. So if done correctly, it shouldn't actually be negative. Going back to the preliminary point, if the person's just not doing good work and that's why you're replacing them, that's a whole different story. And what I was talking about isn't where people weren't doing good work. It was that they got it as far as they could with their talents and their experience. And it was time to take it further, uh, which, you know, different people have different skill sets, like we said. I mean, going back to the previous point, the people who, you know, help scale a company from, you know, you go from zero to one or one to a hundred or, you know, a hundred to a thousand or a thousand to 20 million, right? These are like 
way different in terms of skills and abilities and everybody, you know, you should focus on what people are good at. I'm less into the, Hey, you know, you could be great at all four, but you're only good at three. So really work on the one thing you're bad at. I'm the exact opposite. I think you should figure out what you're good at and keep on leaning into that over and over and over and pay less attention to the few things that you're not as good at kind of like let other people focus on it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so your two co-founders, Eric and Danae, what were their roles that they shifted to over time? So Eric was the solo 10X engineer originally. Then he eventually got support. He was head of engineering and then he was CTO. And then he was always there as kind of like the matrix, you know, being able to see the code and have historical context all the way back from like the first number um, and having that consistency as we scaled out to have, you know, a global company. So uh, that's kind of the evolution there. And he was always very professional about collaborating with others and bringing on others as needed. Danae equally uh, had always been great from literally starting our first bank account, starting our first OFAC, which is Office of of Finance and Accounting Compliance Requirements when you deal with money movement, to constantly being the owner of our culture, making sure that we provided this incredible filter up front. And it really became massive leverage, right? If you use her filters and her abilities to help hire the right people, you just then spread that DNA across the entire company without actually having to do each thing one at a time. In in terms of her process, she uh, eventually got pregnant, took some time off, and then uh, came back, got pregnant again, uh, and then took some more time off. So that was kind of the the natural transition there as she focused uh, on family. Yeah, that makes sense. Were there any, so those two situations sound like fairly natural uh, evolutions over time. Uh, were there any harder ones and were there any sort of external factors, whether it be investors or other things that led to any senior folks needing to to step down and they personally disagreed with or, or struggled with the decisions that were made? So I don't want to go into too many specifics. You know, these are sensitive topics when you talk about HR. Sure. But definitely, you know, we had turnover, no question. Uh, some I wish wouldn't have left and some weren't the right fit, uh, in various roles. Now, this is like a massive generalization, but the way I think about hiring is basically five levels. So very simply level one, two, three, four, five, uh, level one being the most junior level five being the most senior to me, a level four is where you start getting pretty senior and level five is right there reporting to the CEO as senior as it gets. I find that up to level three, and you can categorize for your own company, whatever you think is a level one, two, three, four, five in terms of the actual people. But up to level three, I suggest you move fast, hire fast and fire fast. Don't get too caught up with exactly, you know, the perfect experience and the perfect resume and the perfect everything. I think that one, two, and three, hire fast, fire fast. Four and five, uh, if you make a mistake, can have major implications on the company, both the results and more importantly, the culture. And the culture can destroy your results. Because if you have the company going sideways or if it becomes cancerous or argumentative internally, your results start plummeting really fast. So I think that you should be very patient when it comes to a hiring a four or five, especially a five, 
and be really conscious about the implications of letting them go. That doesn't mean you should not let them go. I absolutely think you should let go any performers that aren't doing well. But if you invested a lot of time into finding a four or five, and all of a sudden you have to introduce them and you have to make it super exciting and hey, Sam and Samantha, you're reporting to this four or this five and hey, they're managing a team of 24 and all of a sudden they input, you know, put in their approaches, it starts causing problems, then you need to let them go. It's a challenge. So I think you need to be very careful with fours and fives in terms of reference checks, making sure that it's the right fit. One of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make is hiring what I call mercenaries, which is they just seem perfect on paper. They have exactly the right experience, but they don't seem like the right cultural fit. They don't seem like they have the right attitude, but they're just so awesome in terms of their experience that of course we need to hire this person. That often turns out quite poorly. Without getting into specifics, even about function, did you hire anyone like that or make that mistake? Um, We came close. But no, we were pretty dogmatic about hiring for cultural fit. That doesn't mean we didn't make any mistakes. And it's not always our mistake. It could be their mistake. Like, you know, it could just be not a fit. But uh, I'm not going to tell you we hired perfectly and we didn't have turnover. We had turnover for sure. But rarely did we kind of focus on that mercenary as an opportunity. We definitely came close for sure a few times. Yeah. And it's hard because it seems like they're special. Like they're like the perfect fit and they're going to 10X our company and they are these unicorns that we're not going to be able to find again. And it's okay that the culture is not the right fit because they're just going to make our company so much more valuable. You know, it's, it's a mirage. Is there a specific role that you can create for people like that though, um, whereby they're not actually managing people and they're just a, a strong individual contributor and you can kind of like, is there a way to insulate them in such a way that they're not damaging to the culture, you can get value out of them. Going back to the framework of a one, two, three, four, five, in a four or five, no. I think that there are certain roles that can be performance-based, that can be very metrics-driven. Said simply, like, let's call it a sales role. Uh, You can funnel some of that mercenary attitude into, but you can't have the four or five sales leader have that. You know, that's just not going to work. Right. What What were some of the harder decisions that you had to make as a leader in terms of personnel where, you know, just stuff where, where the employees themselves, senior or otherwise, may not have agreed with, with the situation or the decision and how did you navigate that? And like, what, what kind of resources do you lean on? I think what, what people want to understand is like behind the scenes, like who are you talking to? How are you making the hard decisions? And then what's it like going through with it? And I realize you have to kind of tiptoe around specifics, but more of the decision process is helpful. Sure. I mean, I was CEO for over a decade from a company that had three founders to then hundreds of people and, you know, distributing hundreds of millions of dollars. So I've, I've had every issue. So I like to say that if it's the CEO that has to help make that decision, it's a lose-lose. Because any decision that is made before the CEO, and I hope as many decisions are made before the CEO, because you're hiring great people that hopefully as few decisions are coming to the CEO as possible. And the funny thing is if somebody has made the decision before you, it's because they felt like it was a win-lose and they're taking the win, right? No one wants to give up an opportunity to take the win. So they're usually just passing forward the opportunity of lose-lose. So, and what is lose-lose? It just means that either decision will have negative consequences, no matter what. So, 
you know, you just got to appreciate that and understand that's the reality, especially as CEO. And it's important to have good investors around you. But most importantly, when I say good investors, I love operators. So I love people that have experience and that you believe in and you can trust and have high integrity. So when I say high integrity, that they're making decisions for the long term, not short-sighted decisions, thoughtful about people, thoughtful about the impact. And, you know, I brought in incredible operator investors. I had perfectly good and still have perfectly good financial investors. Uh, It's kind of like a who's who of, let's call it tech crunch investors. But where I really would lean on to folks was my operator investors. This includes folks like Maynard Webb, who built eBay, uh, Max Levchin, who built PayPal, and obviously now Affirm, or Megan Smith, who was the CTO of the White House after being an entrepreneur, the Partovi brothers, Ben Ling, Keith Raboy. These are just amazing, Richard Branson. These are just amazing operators who, when you have an issue, you know, you can call them and not ask them from a, hey, you're rich, what do you think? It's kind of like you literally dealt with these types of problems once or 10 times already. Here's my fact pattern. How do you think I should navigate it? And the best of them don't tell you the answer. They just share their experiences. They ask you questions and help you reflect on your own situation. What's the best way to cultivate a community of people that you can lean on early on for some of those lessons? Because I think there is definitely, if you're not a company that's raised significant venture money and you haven't experienced significant growth, but you're a healthy business and you are growing and you're dealing with some of these issues, can you speak to a little bit what the strategy was before you hit that inflection point as a company and you were able to attract investors and board members that were of a much higher profile? Um, We would always look to connect with operators and just learn from their experiences and just try to pick up as many best practices. Now, not everybody needs to be Richard Branson. There's other operators out there uh, that you can learn from. If you're literally starting a company on day one today, somebody who's on day 366 is already way more interesting to you, right? So it doesn't have to be the Midas touch number one person. And that's exactly how we constantly built out our company was trying to interact with as many operators and entrepreneurs. The cool thing today, different than when we built Indiegogo, is there's way more entrepreneurs out there now, just in terms of volume, 12 more, 13 more years worth. And everybody knows an entrepreneur. That doesn't mean everybody knows a unicorn entrepreneur, but everybody knows an entrepreneur, uh, nevertheless, maybe 10 or 100 and you just network your way to trying to connect them to them. Uh, this is a side note, but how does it feel knowing that you helped support that with your company? Oh, I love it. I mean, that's why I worked there for so long. That's why so many people were attracted to work at Indiegogo. That's why um, when I talk to people about Indiegogo, even literally in the Amazon of Brazil, you know, a 13 year old kid would be like, I love Indiegogo. It's just so empowering. You know, if you're not waking up excited to go to work, you're doing the wrong job, especially, especially if you're an entrepreneur, if you're waking up and you're an entrepreneur and you don't like what you're doing, you got to change because it's way too much pain, way too much pain to be an entrepreneur and not enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. Which is different than saying, 
there are definitely days I wake up. I'm like, I do not want to do what I'm about to do today. And it has nothing to do with the product itself. There are, there are just days that some of the decisions you have to make, things you have to face are really tough. And I know you're not saying that, but, uh, but you're right. You need to, you need to really love what you're building in order to, to fight through those days. Exactly. So, you know, I like to say that being an entrepreneur is a tightrope. And on one side, you're like so happy and smiling ear to ear. On the other side of the tightrope is, you know, travesty and crying and dark days. And the funny thing is those two emotions as you're walking that tightrope usually happen like within the same 30 seconds, you know, and it's just like a wild ride. So the highs are not as high as you think they are. And the lows are not as low as you think they are. It's just that you need to love what you're doing so much that when it does get low, you don't want to get off the roller coaster. You know, you were a first time founder, right? Yep. How did you, I mean, you were CEO for over a decade of a company that grew to be quite large. And you talk about, you talked about in the beginning of the show, those stages of a company. What did you do to develop yourself to go from being a great founder to being a great operator and grower of such a successful company? I mean, I don't have the secret answer. I, I credit probably three things to being able to last. You know, the fact that it's my first company and it was quote unquote successful, it is what it is. Call that luck, call that, you know, random lightning happened, which is great. In terms of why I was able to scale through, I would say one, I had a, a pretty good business foundation going toward an undergrad. So I understood a lot of like, baseline things about finance, accounting, business, and the way stuff works, which I feel was very helpful. Now, that doesn't make me a good manager, obviously. Then being a strategy consultant for eight years, which the eight years was enough time for me to manage people and for me to manage clients. So I did have experience doing just the work and then managing modules of work and then doing actual, you know, entire teams and getting to manage that, which I feel was critical. Uh, and being in the boardroom and seeing the high stress and seeing at the level that people were talking about, I do think that experience as a strategy consultant was super helpful. The third thing, which is kind of funny, but I think very true, is people say, oh, how does it like being a first time founder, just lighting out of the ball, being successful? I think that we've actually failed with our first company, but it happened to be stubborn enough that we still existed. And the first company was Indiegogo, which was 2008 to 2010, which was basically a disaster. But we just never gave up. And it's because we got rejected by 93 VCs in a row. And we actually never had any money. So the concept of running out of runway couldn't happen. You know, like that thermometer where you see the cash going down to zero. We never had a thermometer. We never had money. We just always were just hanging on by a thread. So the concept of giving up because we're running out of money was never really a thought in itself. I'm not trying to say we had money. I'm just trying to say like in itself, that wasn't the reason to give up or not. So we just kept on persisting and dealing with every problem, messing up every mistake. And I would say like that company failed, but then we kept on you know, evolving and iterating and then the momentum happened. And then we got to ride out the successes of let's call it 2010 forward based on of all of our failures in 2008 and 2009. So I think that is really just time and being given the patience of failure and learning, 
which sadly, when you do raise early, which most people do, and there's nothing wrong with that because that's what you need to raise money and feed yourself and have, you know, rent and whatever. You then see the thermometer of the cash running out and the pressure, and there's just not enough time to make mistakes or too many mistakes. Mistakes can happen, but too many mistakes because then all of a sudden, by the time you figured it out, oh, we're out of money. So those are the three really things that I would say as to uh, how we were able to ride it out and how I was able to kind of navigate through the various roles from learning from my past. What a great concept, though, of just time and putting yourself in a position. I mean, in, in your case, it was a decision or it was just part of the circumstance of not not having funding early, but just leaning on something, setting yourself up so you can buy yourself enough time to just lean on the problem and make mistakes. And that can ultimately result in breakthroughs. I also want to call something out that I've heard now three times in the episode, which is the kind of the billboard material of 93 investors, 93 VCs rejecting you. Was that part of the early, those tough times when you weren't experiencing growth? Was Were those rejections, did you kind of use them as billboard material to use a sports reference, like to motivate you to prove people wrong? Was that competitiveness part of your alchemy of, of getting through those tough years? Or was that is that just something that you're reflecting on now? I mean, in the middle of getting rejected, I could tell you it wasn't like, oh, I'll show them because it's all going to work out great. It was definitely dark times. And we definitely almost shut down in the middle of 2009 uh, in the depths of the economic crisis and our product having challenges. But the reason it's I repeat it is because I want to make sure people understand that I wasn't an overnight success where I you know, threw up a few lines of code and all of a sudden you know, had millions of customers because that's not how life works. Um, and I do find that people say it's inspiring to know that they can fail too, uh, and still have a good result, which is exactly what we went through. I, I am competitive and I like sports, but it wasn't so much about, I'll show them. It was more just the reality. I can't believe you, you have that exact number. I, I mean, I, I actually would say our, our number is pretty similar at times uh, for how many people we've gotten rejected by. So you were CEO for over a decade. Talk to us about the point at, at which you said, okay, I'm going to move on to the next thing. And then, and how did you manage that transition? And you know, what was the environment that led to the, that circumstance? Sure. So um, with CEO from the beginning, uh, lots of zero to one things to be figured out. I'm a zero to one sort of guy. I like the idea of there being air. And then all of a sudden you wave your hands and do some work and, you know, all of a sudden there's reality and something new has been created. So the original idea for Indiegogo was actually to create a for-profit investing platform. Think about it like a early mini New York Stock Exchange. Obviously, we didn't do that to start off with. Part of that was because we evaluated all the laws and the regulations. And so we came up with the crowdfunding model uh, and we always wanted to do the for-profit investing. And uh, then I worked with the Obama administration to pass the Jobs Act uh, in 2012, and then worked with FINRA, the SEC, and the Obama administration to have that implemented in the United States in 2016. Uh, then after that, uh, really then stepped aside from my CEO day-to-day role to try to stand up what's called an equity crowdfunding platform, a for-profit investing platform, and that went great. We did nearly 150 deals, 97% of them funded, which was awesome, and was looking to potentially focus on that more. We decided on as a board and the right decision that that wasn't the right time to pivot the entire company towards that. 
So we really focused on our core product, which is this core crowdfunding product. That business had been worked on already for well over a decade and has now is now to the stage of the thousand to 20 million. You know, it's in its, I don't want to call it last stage of growth, but it's in its, let's try to make this huge stage, which is perfectly great, uh, but is not what is perfect with my skill set. So we put in amazing leaders and yeah, so now the company is led by somebody else. We have an awesome operator from Reddit who leads the company and uh, we've been focusing on being a sustainable company. So we're really happy with the results. And during COVID, we've been navigating really well. Personally, uh, what I did to maintain my goals towards working in the investment space is then parlayed my angel investing and started my own fund, uh, which is called Humbition with my partner, Cyrus Musumi. So it was a very natural transition over a couple of years, and I'm I'm still on the board, still the largest largest individual shareholder, and still Indiegogo is my baby. And I would say probably once every two three days, I'm still sending them, you know, an awesome uh, deal because I, I guess I'm still one of the top salespeople. Can you speak a little bit to that decision process, just a little bit deeper? How much of that was you making that decision just in a silo on your own, and was it just a really personal decision, recognizing your own skill set? Do you include board members, investors? Do you include, do you talk to executive team members? Can you speak just a little bit deeper into that decision-making process? I would say that each situation for any entrepreneur or CEO is going to be very nuanced uh, to their specific stakeholders and their specific situation. So it's hard to get a lot of like copy-paste best practices. But a funny thing uh, is I can tell you that when I did transition out of my role, all of a sudden, I got many emails and calls from other founders or CEOs who are thinking of transitioning, trying to understand how I made the decision. And I would say to them, it's not about how I made the decision. I just help them think about how they make their decision, which goes back to the point about me loving operators and experienced folks around me. People who are good at that don't tell you the answer. They just help you figure out your own experience better. Yeah. I mean, the through line I'm hearing, which is consistent, I think, is just self-sufficiency, trust your instincts, keep going, make mistakes. Like there's not a playbook. So tell us about what you're doing today. Tell us about like your day-to-day now with Ambition and how active is the fund. I know you're involved in Burrow, which is great. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to today. We love Burrow. It's our favorite investment. <laughs> I say that on every one of our portfolio companies podcasts. Just so you know, I know you do. Company. No, all jokes aside. Um, so Burrow's great. Uh, we've invested into twelve companies. We're investing into seed and A. I like to call it serious seed, which is like a two hundred fifty thousand dollars threshold of revenue run rate, which is like twenty grand of revenue a month. To we're typically not first money in unless you're a repeat entrepreneur. Uh, we're really resonating with the repeat entrepreneurs because they know what it's like to work with investors and a lot of financial investors have challenges. So we are operator based investors. We love New York companies, but we're open to outside. We love marketplaces and health tech, but we're open to things outside of that. And we're trying to win the award of favorite investor from every one of our CEOs. And I know that, you know, Steven's going to say I'm his favorite investor. So it's great. To, and I'm joking. Um, he, already, he said it before you got on. I did. Dave, yeah, yeah. Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. And then for what it's worth in parallel, uh, just to throw it out there, I've actually started another company, which is an extension off of the Indiegogo investing business, which is called Vincent uh, with Vincent.com. 
which is a marketplace for alternatives, alternative investments. So think about it like Kayak uh, did for airlines. We're doing for opportunities across all alternative investments. So I've put in a great team there and I'm executive chairing that business, but it really parlays off of the original idea at Indiegogo, which is to try to create a for-profit investing marketplace. And then my experience with the Jobs Act and with uh, originating equity crowdfunding deals, uh, now going across all alternative assets and trying to give the public opportunity to invest into alternative investments. So I started that about a year ago. Um, side question, have you ever chatted with Ken Wen at Republic? Uh, yeah, Ken's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's one of my uh, closest friends. And he's a former episode. We did it. He was two, three episodes ago. Oh, really? So fun. So we dug into alternative investing and the future of investing. And we did Liza Landsman from NEA as well. So we did, we had a pretty, we did a bunch of stuff about the future of investing on two episodes. The Republic obviously is on Vincent as one of the options. Uh, There's like almost 200 platforms out there uh, online that are originating deals. So the whole idea is, you know, why have to go to 200 platforms to figure it out? We just can become the entry point across all the assets. Yeah, that's really smart. Well, Slava, uh, this was this was awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Sure, I've had a good time here. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. And very cool that you're creating this content. Vinius, nice meeting you and everybody out there. If you do want to send me a note, I'm just Slava at ambition dot uh, com. Uh, I tend to respond, but it doesn't mean I want to see your deck or uh, give you money. So, um, class dismissed. If you are wondering how you could support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.